Scheduled next to said earlier, Bob Backlund in a match that was recorded uh, very, very recently. Backlund against Moondog Rex. And what is, I believe, one of the finest tributes to any title holder on any occasion. You will see hundreds of fans. Well, we'll tell you what, we're going to let you see for yourself. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. The following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown and Tate in front of a live studio audience. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 131 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host Peter Winston. And today, we're going to be taking a look 38 years in the past in the month of August. August 1st, 1981, so 8181 edition of WWF Championship Wrestling. Now, why would I just choose that out of nowhere? Well, I had a poll a couple of weeks ago where the winner was 1993 WCW and finishing in second was 1981 WWF. So I just thought I would follow it up with this. But there are a couple of other reasons as well, such as the champion of the World Wrestling Federation for many, many years and during that time period, Mr. Bob Backlund turned 70 on August 14th, which kind of slipped by me. I always forget about the fact that he's born the same year as Ric Flair, but actually after him. Everybody thought of him as like the old guy from the 1993 Royal Rumble, but yet he's very younger than Ric Flair. It's also a chance to go back and do another Allentown show, even if not all of it is from the Allentown Fieldhouse or Agricultural Hall, as it was called. And it's my first chance to do a show with Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson in quite a long time. I It was Vince and Bruno for the 1980 All-Star that I did not long ago. So I've been up late watching wrestling from 81 and 82. And, and Vince and Pat and their intros at the beginning of the show are always kind of funny to me. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is I like about them. There's always a certain awkwardness. Like one of them just cut a huge fart like right before they came on the air. Occasionally they're laughing. They have awkward pauses. It's it's so great. But before I get into the show proper, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greenspaletown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greenspaletown. Give me a follow on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. And you may be listening to this show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And on Pro Wrestling Only in the past week, we had the Bigfoot Pro Wrestling Podcast drop on Wednesday, looking, excuse me, on Monday, looking at independent wrestling in the Pacific Northwest. We had another edition of Strong Style Story come out on Monday, looking at Japanese wrestling. And I believe this week, 
Of course, I'm taping this in advance. I believe we get the dramatic return of Worldcast after a hiatus. I don't know if there will be a PWO retro again this week or if it was just a placeholder for Worldcast. But do hit the subscribe button for the Pro Wrestling Only feed so that you don't miss any of that, including Days of Thunder, which will be dropping Thursday night after this show. Looking at WCW through the prism of the Thursday Thunder Show. They are in 1998 WCW at this time. I believe around that April-May time period. So, as I said, getting a little close to slamboree. Anyway, as for me, my my job search continues, but I got a nice respite from it this past weekend, which uh, kind of made it the weekend of baseball, or I, I cut it a little bit short because my Baltimore Orioles were at Fenway Park, and I had the opportunity to... I've lived in Boston for like 30, the last 30, 30 out of the last 34 years of my life, something like that. And I've gone to Fenway Park hundreds of times, probably like 200, 300 times, I would imagine. And I, I have never, I got to sit in a seat where I have never sat before, which is the right field pavilion box, section 15, which I did not know existed until about 15 minutes before I purchased my ticket for Friday's game, which I had thought ended up 8-1 to one for the Red Sox, but I forgot about the home run in the bottom of the eighth inning. So really, it was 9-1. to one. I mean, I knew it was going to be coming down the road anyway. So it, wins and losses don't matter for the Orioles because, it, well, they don't even run the bases correctly. So how, what the hell does anything really matter? So on Saturday, went to my annual minor league game that I go to with a couple of friends of mine. We're in front row behind the Lowell Spinners dugout as they're taking on the Connecticut Tigers. God knows, I don't know what team they're the affiliate of. You immediately think Detroit Tigers because the name lines up, but with minor league baseball, who really knows? All I know is a really fast game, but I learned a very important lesson on that day. Is that my friends came over to my house beforehand and one of my friends enjoyed a two glasses of bourbon with me. And then we get to the ballpark and we have beer and we're kind of in the sun as well, which, you know, can have an effect. But luckily it was a five o'clock start, so it wasn't so bad. But the lesson I learned, and it was mainly like late that night and the next morning when I just started rambling on all sorts of subjects and pretty much was blacked out, is you can do bourbon plus sunshine and you can do beer plus sunshine but you can't do bourbon plus beer plus sunshine because it's going to knock you on your ass i mean honestly i could just switch to a bourbon that's not a hundred proof maybe something that's 90 proof but at the end of the day it's really not going to make much of a difference when i'm struggling to sleep after i wake up at 3:45 in the morning and then just sleep in five-minute increments but you know i i did i did what i could on that but just really a public service announcement on all that but anyway back to the actual wrestling here this show or at least most of it was taped july 21st 1981 in allentown this is with the exception of the final or two two of the matches not the final two matches and on that taping we did have a tag team title change which aired on the previous week's championship wrestling tony Gurria and rick martell regained the wwf tag team titles over the moon dogs which would be rex and spot as king has been put out to pasture due to some immigration issues he's stuck in canada which is how the moon dogs team ended up changing since they had won the titles earlier in the year but the unusual thing about this show 
is it's got a Bob Backlund match on TV, and you're probably saying, Pete, you literally just did a show not that long ago that featured a Bob Backlund match on TV. Well, that wasn't a real match. It was that El Olimpico exhibition of holds for 10 minutes where pinfalls don't count. I don't know what the hell that was. I was trying to make sense of it, but not sure if I really could. But Backlund, for the year 1981, had a very interesting year in terms of it was it was quite different the type of matches he was having up to this point in the year because he was feuding with Stan Hansen very early in 1981 and they had a three-match series at Madison Square Garden that apparently according to Bob Backlund's book was only supposed to be two matches and Stan Hansen kind of held everybody up to make sure he got that third match and that would actually end up affecting Backlund in a certain way because his next opponent was to be Angelo King Kong Mosca, a personal favorite of mine. But the problem is you got two guys who are fairly similar to, to the, each other, big dudes who are very, very stiff in the ring. In fact, Backlund tells a great story about how Angelo Mosca potatoed him in Pittsburgh or someplace else at a title defense. So Backlund hit him as hard as he could back, and that's how he kind of earned the respect of big, nasty Angelo Mosca. So as we get into later in the year, he starts facing more, I don't know, agile guys who can wrestle in the form of Greg Valentine and Don Morocco, the magnificent Morocco. And yes, Morocco was that kind of guy in 1981. He was very different. But he also did some unusual things that you would not see a WWF champion in the years after this do to this extent facing Antonio Inoki down in Mexico on some sort of special card. Even work shots in Georgia, Jim Crockett Promotions, Championship Wrestling from Florida, which is less of a surprise given that that's Eddie Graham's promotion. Eddie Graham very tight with Vince McMahon Sr. And Vince Sr. had that place down at Florida. So <laughs> I, I can see why those guys would be pals. And he, he made a couple of sojourns over to New Japan he had a couple of stretches over there in the springtime. The The match that I'm most interested in from his Japan listings for 81, June 6, and just the star power in this six-man best two out of three falls. Antonio Inoki, Bob Backlund, and Dusty Rhodes defeated Bobby Duncan, Hulk Hogan, and Stan Hansen. And poor Bobby Duncan, a perfectly acceptable professional wrestler in there with those five guys, and I don't really feel like I'm overrating any of them so the WWF champion was certainly traveling around and technically it was not considered a world title because of the WWF still being part of the NWA which they had rejoined in 71 when Bruno had lost the title to Ivan Koloff and stayed in the alliance until 1983 at the NWA meeting when Vince Jr. was in charge and pulled them out of there I have to say, I really enjoy watching this as the late-night viewing or something that's on in the background as I'm working on my resume or whatever because it, it's not anything where I really have to pay close attention, but I can kind of hear what's going on. You get the commentary of Pat and Vince. I don't particularly care how they've only put All-Star on the network. That kind of leaves me scratching my head. However... One of the matches on this show also aired on All-Star Wrestling, and there is one very important difference between this match and what aired on All-Star, which I will get to in due course. But on this show is 
Bob Backlund in what they said was a non-title match against Moondog Rex. We're going to see Mil Mascaras making a visit up from Mexico, as he would often. He'd come into the Northeast quite a bit for reasons that I'll get into. Greg Valentine, who had just come in from a successful stint in Jim Crockett Promotions. Andre the Giant, who is back from his leg injury that was sold at the hands of Killer Khan, although it was just that Andre was starting to break down, unfortunately. And this is the debut appearance of Masa Saito in his team with Mr. Fuji, and they are taking on a well. There's one familiar face on the other side, and you're you're gonna you're gonna think that it's just perfect when we get there. So, with all that in mind, why don't we just jump right into the show? And I, what's great about this particular time frame for August first, 1981, is sometimes I have trouble finding things that happened around that time period, like. Even the last show from 1993, October, it's like, you know, what what are you really going to find? But there was a lot of interesting stuff going on in the world of not only just sports, but in the news in August of 81. Because 8181 is very famous for being the debut of something that would come to define the decade. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Just moments ago, all of the VJs and the crew here at MTV collectively hit our executive producer, Sue Steinberg, over the head with a bottle of champagne, and behold, a new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. Yeah, August 1st, 1981 was the day MTV came on the air for the first time, changing music videos forever because there were music videos before this, believe it or not, but it just tended to be a band playing in some studio and just them cutting between members of the band. This this is where you'd start to get like the Peter Gabriel videos that were all like weird and stuff, and you could just sit there and watch for hours, and they were kind of bringing together all genres, although they were to the exclusion, I think, of uh, persons of color at a certain point, with the exception of Michael Jackson. Eventually, the music audience fragments enough, and you got Headbangers Ball, Yo! MTV Raps, and they figure out, well, you got to put everything in a specific time slot for when people are tuning in for that. And then when the real world comes on the air in 1992, it's basically like, I don't, I don't give a crap about MTV anymore. But it certainly did change the game, and that's not just a cliche in this case. So we get the signature at the start of championship wrestling which is all bob backland stuff it reminds me of that era where it was only hulk hogan in i think it was 91 wwf like waving the flag and stuff and maybe it's because there aren't so many dynamic baby faces in 81 wwf behind backland bruno is about to retire for the first time and hold to it for several years pedro morales is not exactly going to get the crowd going Andre was out for a while earlier in the year. He was in the signature for much of the early 80s, but for this time period, I guess not. And I guess Greer and Martel couldn't make the cut. And I guess no tag teams allowed. But we cut to Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson. And the introductions that I, I just enjoy these so much because 
as I've said before in covering these shows, it's just like two pals just recording this wrestling show because Vince is still just the announcer boy. He doesn't own the company or anything like that. And he, he and Pat have some sort of rapport going on. And sometimes one of them would be laughing as they come on the air. One of them would be overly smiling, you know, my fart theory that I floated a little bit earlier. But in this case, you get this amazing awkward pause as they as Vince attempts to introduce who the visiting dignitary is this week. Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson here at ringside. Where we'll be taking another look at an extraordinary athlete by the name of Mil Mascaris who will join us. Well, Vince, I've said it many times before, Mil Mascaris is one of a kind. Uh... Now, I timed that, and it's only a two-second pause where Vince clearly can't remember Mil Mascaris's name, and Pat just kind of gives him a look of like, what's going on here? It's only two seconds, but it feels long enough that if I'm at a traffic light and somebody waited that long to actually hit the gas and go when the light was green, I probably would tap the horn at Vince. Come on, Vince, let's let's move it already. So we have the format of championship wrestling would be they would introduce the show like this, and then they would go to Vince in front of the ring where they would do a promo for something like the Spectrum, or in this case, Madison Square Garden, because this is taken from WOR Channel 9 in New York. And Vince makes sure to put over how Madison Square Garden has air conditioning, which is very important for an August 24th show coming up. 22,000 in the garden, but unfortunately, this is one of those rare MSG shows that was not taped for whatever reason, you just say Andre the Giant versus Killer Khan. Killer Khan? No, that's um, <laughs> that's the sidekick from uh, Home Improvement from Tool Time. Uh, Andre and Killer Khan in a Texas Death Match facing uh, with Gorilla Monsoon and Pat Patterson as the guest referees. Now you know it's a big main event at Madison Square Garden when Pat Patterson ends up being one of the referees and. On the under, well, I don't even know which would be the main event. I guess the main event, as they put it, is Bob Backlund defending the World Wrestling Federation title against the newly crowned Intercontinental Champion, who had just beaten Pedro Morales for it, the Magnificent Morocco. And Backlund comes in to discuss this upcoming bout, and <laughs> Vince's line of questioning is is really kind of dumb. It's like, haven't you worked there that whole time? Here with us now to discuss the matchup. The champion, Bob Backlund. Bob, you have met the greatest. How long have you been champion now? Been three and a half years now, Vince. It is fairly obvious in Vince McMahon's style of the time that he was channeling Howard Cosell as the kind of sportscaster that he wanted to be. But honestly, with the line of questioning there, he comes off way more like Jim Carr from Slapshot. Reggie, I guess you represent the old guard up through the ranks, one of the Iron Men of the Federal League. You've been playing pro hockey now for how many years? Quite a few, aren't you? Is that right? And on the other side of the scale, Ned Braden, who's a college graduate and an American citizen. You went to Princeton and we're all Eastern, weren't you, Ned? That's what it said in the yearbook, Jim. Maybe my criticism is misplaced and Vince is playing some sort of five-dimensional chess here trying to get the best he can out of Backland because he's a Minnesota boy, probably grew up playing hockey, probably played hockey outside even, and is just trying to channel that thing from Slapshot to kind of get a better answer out of Bob. But, well, I guess you kind of get the standard hockey player between inter- between periods interview from Backland. I mean, like you say, I've met a lot of tough people, but, you know, Vince... Uh in the three and a half years that I've had the World Wrestling Federation title, nobody's ever come out here and said, 
that they were going to come out and wrestle me. Nobody at all said, I'm going to beat the heck out of you, I'm going to tear you apart, I'm going to punch you, kick you, get you down, do anything I can to get that title. Morocco said he was going to come out there and beat me in wrestling in the middle of that ring in Madison Square Garden. I'm looking forward to that, Vince. Thank you, Bob, and good luck in the third period. But no, actually, Backlund was very excited to have Morocco there as an opponent because with the Mosca and before that Stan Hansen, you had two big brawlers, kind of the same match in both cases. And it actually proved that Backlund could be could work a brawling style because there was actually some questions about it to that point. But he was, it was nice to go back to having regular wrestling matches with the likes of Morocco. They even had 60-minute draws. I think he said that they had six or seven of them. But here's what Backlund had to say about Morocco in his 2015 book, Backlund from All-American Boy to Professional Wrestling's World Champion. I was really excited to have Don in territory, particularly as a heel Intercontinental Champion and number two guy in the Federation. You couldn't duplicate Don Morocco. He had evolved into his character from the time he entered the business, and it worked very well for him. Morocco really did live in Hawaii, and he loves surfing and spending time on the beach. And the fact is that the best in-ring character you can have is the one that is closest to something that you really are so that there is no pretending. Morocco is a handsome, cocky, athletic guy with all the skills in the world, and the persona he played just came naturally to him. WWF is also noted for big guys, and Don had shoulders as big as anyone in the business, so he really looked the part. Vince Sr. liked Morocco immediately, and after getting the seal of approval from Eddie Graham down in Florida that Don was reliable and could be trusted not to miss dates, Vince felt comfortable putting him into the Federation's second biggest spot as the Intercontinental Champion. So, yes, Don Morocco is not always the guy that he was from early 86 through the end of his run in 1988 81 he's very very different and his promos are as entertaining as anybody in wrestling at that time i covered on the december 31 83 edition of championship wrestling which is episode 46 of greens from Allentown, my personal favorite don morocco promo on where he yawns and picks his nose and basically just has a lot of fun looking like he was very high with Captain Lou laughing at the background as he talks about an upcoming match at the Nassau Coliseum with Pat Patterson. Now, into the screen comes Andre the Giant, who puts his foot on Vince's shoulder. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm just I, I'm thinking of that because of the uh, Bob Euchre line from WrestleMania 4, which I just watched in its entirety the other day. I have absolutely no idea why, but Andre... He's very, very pleased about everything, uh, and it's got nothing to do with however many uh, barrels of wine he had consumed that day. I'm happy like I've never been before. I got two guests referee in a Texas death match where everything's gone. Right. I come, I got two special guests referee. Uh, Gino Monson and Pat Patterson. What for? Freddie Blassie, you asked for those two special guests referee. You got those two guys because the last time in the Madison Square Garden, I was ready to kill them. And nobody can stop me. And now you think Gloria Monson and Pat Patterson going to stop me? Freddie Blassie, I got some news for you. Nobody going to stop me. When Andre meant business, he was genuinely scary to listen to. I'm going to kill them? Like, kill may be a bit of a harsh term. I mean, Bob Backlund learned that lesson three years before this when he said he was going to kill High Chief Peter Maivia for turning on him and roughing up Arnold Skolan. But anyway, we go into the actual show now beginning. And in the ring, the great Joe McHugh 
who at this point is, let me get my abacus out, 78 years old at the time. But even though this is the second show of the taping, we are still going to get the full Joe McHugh intro with a little bit of changes because we got a different doctor and a few other uh, new people on the scene. Our ladies and gentlemen, this is Championship Wrestling, promoted by Phil Zatko, supervised by the State Athletic Commission. The Honorable J.J. Binns is chairman, Francis Walker is the executive secretary, and the officials assigned, Deputy Commissioner Peter Lash, the doctor in attendance at ringside, Dr. Larry Bender, the timekeeper at the bell, Mike Mittman, and the referees. For this hour of wrestling, Dick Worley, Gilberto Roman, Danny Davis, Dick Carroll, and my name is Joe McHugh. That whole thing just never gets old for me, even though we didn't get to hear Dr. George Zoharian. Instead, we get Dr. Larry Bender, who, believe it or not, a practicing urologist still to this day in the state of Virginia. It said Richlands, Virginia, which apparently is much closer to Tennessee and West Virginia than most of the state, like Richmond and all the way up to Washington, D.C. area. So it's pretty out there, but his license expires in 2020. I don't know if that's an age thing or a time-related deal, but he was in Pennsylvania during that time, five years practicing at that point. So I guess filling in while Zahorian was probably in the Cayman Islands or something like that, living high on the hog, as it were. So our first matchup is a tag team match in a rare instance of a television match where you have absolutely no idea who's going to win because the teams are at least relatively even. It's it's 60-40, 50-50, that kind of thing. Is Dominic DiNucci teaming up with SD Special Delivery Jones, or Super D Jones, as he was sometimes known back in 81. And they are taking on Baron Mikel Cicluna and Johnny Rods. So... None of these guys are like pure jobbers, but none of them really win all that much, although S.D. Jones had a bit of a winning streak earlier in 81 that I covered back in episode 38, so you could give the advantage to the Dominic and S.D. side. Danucci, when he's introduced, and I need to make a screenshot of this, he makes this face because McHugh introduces him as being from Venice, Italy, which technically that is his birthplace, but in most matches he would be billed from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I guess maybe he's a little bit surprised on that. SD, still from Philadelphia, obviously, at that point. Baron Mikel Cicluna from the Isle of Malta. So maybe they introduce... Danucci from Italy to build up that long-standing Italy-Malta rivalry. I have absolutely no idea if that is something that exists. So geographically, they're pretty close to each other. And the Baron runs after Dom, continuing that feud that was chronicled on the Titans of Rex Wrestling expertly by Kelly Nelson, because these two guys faced each other over a 15-year span, uh, probably hundreds of times. But as this match gets going, we get Howard Finkel on the overdub telling us about an August 3rd show coming up in Wildwood, New Jersey. That's a great Cat Stevens song, Wildwood. Oh, that's Wild World. Never mind. But there's no attendance 
for that. And there's an interesting thing about Wildwood, New Jersey that I found out after I uh, <laughs> had pulled the match results for this one that I, I thought was rather interesting. Roberto Soto fought Larry Sharp to a draw. We're going to see Larry Sharp a little later. Ron Shaw pinned Jack Carson. We're going to see both of those guys. Steve King and Angelo Gomez defeated Victor Taylor and Chris Canyon when Canyon was pinned following a double power slam. Chris Canyon would one day go on to become King Kong Bundy. But here he is losing to Steve King on a spot show in Wildwood, New Jersey. Pat Patterson fought IC champion Don Morocco to double disqualification. And Bruno San Martino pinned Bulldog Brower. So a kind of a rare appearance for Bruno. But there were actually multiple shows in Wildwood that month. And the reason for that is Wildwood right on the ocean. So... You can get those shows in in the summertime. When people are on vacation, you can probably draw a crowd on the basis of that. Dominic starts the match in very much in peril, but again, he knows how to deal with Baron Mikel Cicluna, although Pat Patterson on commentary calls him Mike. Like, I never thought of, I mean, yeah, his name is Baron Mikel Cicluna, which is like Michael Cicluna, but like, Mike? Like, wh- wh- where does that come from? But all we're seeing is just arm work, and when Johnny Rods gets in, Pat respects how much Rods gives an effort out there. He says he gives 150%. So, I don't know, ever since I mentioned my freshman athletic director addressing my freshman football team and saying 150%, that's now turned up in two consecutive episodes where somebody has actually mentioned that. Whether we like it or not, there's one man that I respect. Is that Johnny Rods. you got to give him credit. He takes a lot of beating, but he doesn't back up from anyone, and he gives you 150%. Rods is such an interesting guy to watch because just from his look, he looks like a guy who's about to kick everybody's ass, but he never actually does in any of these matches. So his look doesn't necessarily match the level that he's on, but he was certainly very, very good at what he did. There's a tag to SD Jones by Dominic, but the ref was distracted, and they actually repeat that spot twice to really drive it home. One thing I should mention about this match is I'm trying something different for my wrestling watching is I was watching this on 1.25 times speed. And I don't know if anybody else does that, but let's just say it makes these guys move around the ring at... uh at, at a pretty good pretty good clip. It, it's like you're watching silent films, like the ones where Babe Ruth homers and he's running to first base like really, really fast. And This is a really lengthy heat segment, so you kind of wonder what's going on. Eventually, Dominic gets across the ring, does tag out to SGSD, and he's a ball of fire for a little bit, but Rods eventually regains command as a foot to the throat, and then they double-team him in the corner. And Dick Worley, who is our referee here, is laying on a fast five count to them as Rods is Rods is only standing on the apron, so it's not like both guys are in the ring and they're double teaming that way. And in fact, Johnny Rods not doing a whole lot illegal here. So Worley he counts to five and then calls for the bell. So uh, I'm wondering, okay, you've disqualified Rods and Baron Mikel Cicluna in this match. Why are you doing this? To establish that there is a five-count rule for tag team matches and that you're actually going to start enforcing them now? I mean, who, who really knows? But I guess Pat Patterson may have a theory. Well, Vince, I think it's about time that the referee really does something for a change, disqualified 
Rods and Cicluna. Well, that somewhat incoherent thought didn't really tell me a whole lot, although it does work if you're trying to establish rules or maybe build to something, but it doesn't really seem like that's the case here. However, with Pat Patterson still involved, this is how his angle with Angelo Mosca would start up in September, so about a month, month and a half away, where Pat Patterson actually congratulates Dick Worley for disqualifying Angelo Mosca in a match against enhancement talent Victor Mercado, or Mercado, whichever it's pronounced. It, it doesn't really matter. But anyway, as Pat was congratulating Dick Worley, interviewing him at ringside, Angelo Mosca hit Patterson in the back of the head with a metal water pitcher, which they brought back the next week and showed how dented it was from Patterson getting hit by it. So I think it works if you have a match where one guy is clearly expected to win and he gets disqualified for breaking the rules rather than this more 60-40, 50-50 match we got going on here. So I don't know. SD Jones and Dominic DiNucci prevail by disqualification over Baron Mikel Cicluna and Johnny Rods. Okay. All right. I guess that was something that happened. That I must tell those who failed to report for duty this morning. They are in violation of the law. And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. The week after the show aired was the air traffic controller strike, which led to Ronald Reagan eventually firing all of them when they didn't report for work within the 48-hour span that he just alluded to. The fact is that it was an illegal strike, according to federal law, and just seemed to be poorly planned and thought out by the PATCO union. And in fact, would have a impact far beyond any sort of government union because it would stretch to private sector unions as well. And they would just weaken through the 80s because of the message this sent. But honestly, if you had a do over on it, they probably should have just reported for work after the 48 hours, taken as long as they possibly could and just do it that way and just continue your negotiation. Because at least you've shown that you would walk out for that full 48 hours. But I don't know. Uh, what do I know? I'm, I'm not exactly a labor union negotiator, although I did write that article on placebenation.com about the 1994 baseball strike. Do check that out. That was released towards the end of last week. And up next, we have Greg Valentine, not billed as the hammer, but with the Grand Wizard at his side as his manager. And he is facing off against an immigrant from Panama by the name of Steve King. So you know it's definitely not the congressman from Iowa who said something to the effect of, we would not have modern families today uh, if it wasn't for rape and incest. So clearly this is uh, that is a guy who clearly doesn't think about what's coming out of his mouth before it does. Now, I had mentioned Danny Davis, who's announced during the introduction. And he is here, and I, I don't know if I remember seeing him on WWF TV for at least a long time before this. I don't remember him in 1980, but his hair at this point in time, you remember him having the shorter straight hair when he's dangerous Danny Davis later in the decade. But his hair at this point, it originally I thought it's like a cross between the Great Gazoo and season five edition of Mike Brady, Robert Reed from the Brady Bunch in like this perm that's like perfectly spherical. Although you could probably just say that it's more straight up Leo Sayer. If you look up who that is, you make me feel like dancing, all that sort of stuff. But Greg Valentine, very nice robe 
doesn't have any rhinestones on it, so Ronnie Garvin won't get all offended that it's cheap rhinestones. And Valentine and King are both in red trunks here, so somebody's going to get confused. And that is how the angle would happen with Bob Backlund and Greg Valentine at Madison Square Garden later in 81. A referee would be knocked silly. Both guys wearing black trunks. Backlund gets the pin, one, two, three, and Valentine gets up, pretends like he was the one on top, and the dazed referee gives him the belt. That was an angle that Backlund, in his book, said that he had worked out on his own. He was asked to come up with something creative for their series, and that is what he got. And Valentine wastes no time just working the leg, dropping elbows on the hamstring. Goes for what appears to be a half crab, but doesn't turn it all the way over. Just kind of gets him halfway and it just says, you know what, screw this. I, but he's completely relentless. And King gets up, but then gets elbowed on the top of the head. So he just knocks him right back down to the mat. Valentine with a spinning toe hold where he goes round and around four times. That's not a hold that I would actually see him do much later in the decade, which is funny given that the figure four, one of his trademarks, his finishing hold, and he actually does lock that in here. And spinning toe hold is a natural setup to that. But as you get later in time, he doesn't. He's not allowed to have longer matches, despite Monsoon busting on. Oh, it takes Valentine 15 minutes to get warmed up. But how many times in like 1988 was Greg Valentine allowed to go that long? I mean, he had matches with Morocco, and by then the Morocco ship, ship had sailed. Quite frankly, but Davis. As the referee, he, he's far from crooked or anything because that that thing on top of his head is going to keep him perfectly straight. But he never signals for the bell. There's no like sign that the guy submitted. He just like has Valentine break the hold. Like, excuse me, we're trying to run a professional wrestling show here. What you do is you signal for the bell, preferably as closely to Brian Hildebrand slash Mark Curtis as you can. Like, make it. You know, make it so that the audience can actually see it. Then the guy, Mike Mittman, should ring the freaking bell because you just had your name announced on TV. So we now know who the idiot is who didn't ring the bell. And this match really kind of bothered me. But it was a nice victory for Valentine. It was kind of like something out of the Arn Anderson 1985 Crockett playbook in terms of one of the enhancement matches that he would have. Have you ever seen 248 pounds of style and grace float down the face of a 12-foot wave, bank off the top, come through the lip, bounce off the white water into the tube, and get spit out between the coral heads? I know in the water that I can rip. But in the mat, in the ring, even a world champion, even the greatest wrestler in the world, the title holder is no match for the magnificent one. There's no competition. I will out-wrestle you. I don't have to brawl you. I don't have to kick you. I can out-wrestle you. One of the things that kind of stinks about the all-star wrestlings that are on the award-winning WWE Network is they'll remove local promos like this so you don't get to see Morocco's personality come out. You just see him maybe lumbering around during a squash match where maybe he's not as dynamic as a Greg Valentine was a little bit earlier in the show. Now, up next, we have Rick McGraw, who has a neck brace on because he will be standing trial for steroid distribution. Oh, wait, no, never mind. That's the wrong guy on the screen who did that particular thing. Now, 
Uh, Rick McGraw had been roughed up by Killer Khan. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, a broken neck, roughed up. Maybe I'm understating it a little bit. But Killer Khan had taken care of him a few weeks before this. And uh, we don't see him in a WWF ring for the rest of 81. He turns up in the Quebec territory towards the very end of the year. He comes back in the spring of 1982. But Rick McGraw, I've referred to the Rick McGraw chair, which was later assumed by Paul Roma, the gatekeeper babyface, jobber to the stars type. And usually there's one thing that kind of keeps guys on that level. For Paul Roma, it was his height. For Rick McGraw, it was probably his height too, but I don't think that hurt him quite as much as his just complete inability to talk. Uh, yes, I've talked to the doctors and they say it's going to be, well, maybe not soon, but I will be back. Uh, I'll be back stronger. But uh, Vince, this guy, Killer Khan, he's just getting out of control. He's broken Andre's ankle. Uh, he's just devastating the whole area. Uh, Where's it going to stop? Uh, I mean, this kind of thing shouldn't happen. Uh, I mean, I'm out there trying to wrestle. You know, I promised my fans that I would, I would never turn on them. Uh, you know, even now, uh, as much uh, hate as I feel in my heart for a man who would do something to this, you know, take away my livelihood, you know, my ability to uh, make money and uh, feed my family, you know, uh, what kind of what kind of animal has Freddie Bl- Blassie created? Uh, where will it end? Now, maybe he's not raising as much sympathy as he possibly could, but I guess he's just serving a role there, being the guy that Killer Khan injured, and now that helps to build up the Andre feud with him returning. And speaking of which, up next we have Andre the Giant taking on Philadelphia's own Ron Shaw. And Andre's ankle injury put him out in the spring, but he was only gone for two months, so it wasn't an injury where it was like six months, although you think somebody of his size, it would have been beneficial for him to be on the shelf a little bit longer. That is the story where Andre undergoes the ankle surgery, and nobody knew exactly how much anesthetic to give him. In fact, there was an article in Sports Illustrated in December of 1981 which kind of goes over this. The doctor at Boston's Beth Israel Hospital repaired Andre's ankle and said the giant was so uniformly large that all aspects of his hospitalization were difficult. Andre had suffered a bio... You know, I can't read that medical term. But anyway, he says that he was injured during the match, which isn't exactly true. Apparently, it was getting out of bed. He finished the bout. According to Dr. Yet, unusual surgical tools and techniques were required for the operation. The largest screws available were needed to fix the melodious whatever in place, for instance. Two tourniquets had to be used end-on-end to encompass his thigh. (laughs) And Dr. Yet described Andre's cast as the largest they ever had to make. Fortunately, the hospital had a nine-foot bed, but Andre presented other problems, such as the method of anesthesia and the fact that the hospital's longest pair of crutches was not quite long enough. It was not without benefit. It was the first injury of any seriousness that Andre had sustained. And the months he spent recovering on his mountaintop estate, though often frustrating, made him realize how much he had been missing because of his life of constant travel. And then the article kind of closes out saying, you know, eventually in 10 years or so, as Andre envisions it, he will live a life in which he wrestles infrequently, working only the biggest arenas, but is active in the promotion. Well, 10 years from that point puts you in the summer of 1991, and he's being written off for a leg injury 
at the hands of another monster heel earthquake so and he only had less than two years to live at that point so really kind of sad when you think about it but this feud with killer con i'd have to rank it a little bit better than the never-ending big john stud feud of 1983 through 89 pretty much with the exception of when stud wasn't there and andre is signing autographs for the kids who are able to actually run right up to the ring in allentown so ron shaw just attacks him in the middle of signing an autograph as howard finkel with the voiceover talks about an upcoming card to nagatuck connecticut cripes apparently i can't pronounce anything during this friggin uh, segment but we got a kurt henning versus angelo mosca match on that card so hey and it will benefit the local little league so i guess uh, that might have been a good show to go to apparently it was the debut in that particular town andre uh, he, he's not going to waste any time here even though he gets attacked at the beginning he suplexes shaw the same exact suplex you would see on the main event in 88 right before he pins hogan where he just kind of hooked the arms kind of like a pedigree but instead of getting him like over the top he hogan is kind of thrown sidearm across the ring but here ron shaw can definitely go for the ride the big boot and a sit down splash the finisher of earthquake will finish this one for andre as the kids now run up to the ring again to get andre to sign to kind of i guess there's some unfinished business there and they announced the time of the fall at 49 seconds which they say is a new record which i don't i don't know how true that is but they did tend to try to have these matches go a little bit longer so for all i know it could be but then the WWF would have this obsession with breaking records for like Royal Rumble eliminations. Like, oh, 0.1 seconds. Like, well, all right, if you do that, then you're not going to be able to break that record anymore. You know, you got to leave yourself a little bit of room. The strike is over and WGN is ready to take you back to the ballpark. Hi, I'm Milo Hamilton. Join us here on Channel 9 as the 1981 baseball season swings back into action. We'll bring you all the live coverage you've been waiting for. Be watching Monday afternoon, August 10th at 1.30, when the Cubs take on the Mets in the first of a four-game series. Later Tuesday night, August 11th at 6.30, the Sox are back in action against the Red Sox. Catch all the baseball action live here on WGN Television 9 Chicago, America's number one sports station. It was the day before this show aired on July 31st that the long baseball strike of 1981 that ended up splitting the season into two, that was resolved. They took about a week, week and a half. Then they started up again with the All-Star game and then those games as they described there. The Cubs at that time were a pretty lousy team in both halves of the season. The White Sox were a little bit better. They got caught with Fisk from the Red Sox because, believe it or not, the Red Sox forgot to mail him a formal contract offer, which ended up making him a free agent, and uh, they lost him for nothing, which... He then only played another 13 years in his Hall of Fame career with the White Sox. So, hey, what are you going to do? I mean, after the 81 season, baseball kind of flipped in Chicago because I believe that is when Harry Carey got dropped by the White Sox, made his way up to the north side with the Cubs. And that's kind of where the Cubs gained a lead over the White Sox as Chicago's team. It's my understanding that up to that point, the White Sox were very much even with the Cubs or, in fact, even more popular than them. So, up next, we have Pat Patterson talking about, once again, talking about Long Island. I referred to that promo where Morocco was going to face Patterson at the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island, and now Patterson is going to be facing George the Animal Steel. 
And uh, Pat is wondering how, how exactly he should approach such an unorthodox competitor. Well, Vince, all you have to do is go in the ring and really fight fire with fire because when you step in the ring and a man like George Steele, anything could happen. He can find a chair, a table, a bell, anything else that he can grab, he'll bring it in the ring. And he loves to cripple wrestler. But I know one thing for sure, that Fred Blassie is behind the whole thing, and he would love very much for George Steele to put me out of wrestling. That Fred Blassie would love very much. That's what he loves. He had a killer con put Andre, Andre in a hospital, and he would love for George Steele to put Pat Patterson in the hospital. Maybe it's that movie that came out after this, My Dinner with Blassie, the Andy Kaufman thing, but I just had the thought of Freddie Blassie, just kayfabe hat firmly strapped on right now. He's managing two guys because Stan Hansen is gone back to Japan at this point. So his two men in the middle of 1981, Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura would join later, are Killer Khan and George the Animal Steel. And then there's Blassie. And I'm thinking that would be maybe the last group, just kayfabe, like those guys as characters that I would ever want to go out to dinner with. I feel like we would get thrown out of the restaurant in record time. So up next, we got pretty boy Larry Sharp taking on Jack Carson. And boy, I don't. I have no idea what the hell to say about this match other than the fact that it's two Jersey boys going at it here. And Larry Sharp, a trainer extraordinaire, trained Bam Bam Bigelow, among others. And he offers a handshake right away. And when Carson grabs the hand, he Sharp then grabs a side headlock. I think Larry Sharp may be the most notable wrestler that there is. When you go to their cage match page, there isn't a single comment. And you look up any wrestler out there. There's at least one person who's going to say something, whether it be like, the lowest jobber who happens to have a profile, some obscure mid-carder from some territory in the past. Larry Sharp, no comments at all. It just seems really strange, probably because hardly anybody would remember him as a wrestler unless you were over 45 years old. And even if you did remember him, why would you care enough to go to cage match and actually comment on Larry Sharp? So maybe I've just kind of answered my own inquiry. I've seen him on Greetings Valentine before. He's in a tag team with Jack Evans back in 79. Carson goes for the SD Jones Memorial Charge, but instead of just missing, he hits hits a knee as Sharp gets that up in the corner. And he yells at Carson. He's kind of jarring with him, which leads to what I consider a mildly humorous exchange. Larry Sharp yelling at his opponent. Is that effective, Pat, in a match? Oh, it sure does, especially, Vince, if a guy is not well experienced. Uh, it will uh, make him think a little bit. But the once you've been in wrestling for a long time, like I had, they can call me all sorts of names. It wouldn't bother me. All that counts is what they do to me and what I do to them. You're like, hey, rookie, you got to listen to my spot calls, okay? Do you know who I am? I'm Larry Shop. I trained Bam Bam Bigelow, although not yet in 19. 19- 81. Working the left arm because it is 1981 and hits a back elbow. And this is a match where I am definitely glad that I've discovered this thing where I can watch it at 1.25 times speed because it actually brings it up to about a 1988 speed match, which is really nice. A pile driver by Larry Sharp, which Vince kind of, he kind of shits on it because it wasn't particularly well executed, but... 
Larry Sharp does pick up the three count on that one. I mean, it, it, it was what it was. I mean, it's it was perfectly fine. So why don't we just go back? It's promo time again before we get to our feature bout with Bob Backlund against Moondog Rex. We got Freddie Blassie at ringside with Vince. And this is for the MSG Texas Death Match with Andre and Killer Khan. I don't know why they kept calling it a Texas Death Match. I mean, you're the New York Territory. I mean, what what makes Texas any more special than anywhere else? Like, why can't it be? I guess California Death Match kind of gives a different image. But like, this is New York City in the year 1981. Okay, it was a very different place. Like, when when Homer Simpson gets lost there, it's like you got to look out for the pimps and the chuds. I mean, it's not like it was any picnic walking around Manhattan at that time. I heard Andre the Giant make an interview previously saying that I demand two referees be in a ring. That's right, I did. One man to keep those pencil neck geeks, those friends of Andre's out of the ring, the other guy to keep an eye on a bell. Because Andre the Giant, my man, had you beat limping in bloody mess. When your two men came out there and one rang the bell and the other bunch of pencil geeks, geeks run in it. Hold you back for what? Hold you back from what? My man had you limping. You were the one that was bleeding. And I guarantee you this time, it'll happen again, only worse. I really like Blassie as a promo. He could be really funny at times. I know I covered that other 1981 show where he's out there with Killer Khan. I thought that Vince kind of had Freddie out there a little too long vamping, like a Saturday Night Live skit that just kind of kept going on and on and on. And you could tell Blassie just wanted to go to the back and play cards with the Wizard and Albano. I, I still kind of prefer the Grand Wizard out of the three just because uh, I, I love his voice. There's a certain cartoonish supervillainy to not only the way his voice was like this, but the way he would dress as well. It, it really made him stand out. Not, not to say that Blassie's outfits didn't make him stand out. Albano, he's kind of a different thing. He's a little... I kind of have the same problem with Albano that Pat Patterson had in the storyline in, in 1979 when his contract gets sold by the wizard to Albano. He's too much of a slob and I really don't want to hang out with him because it might be more trouble than it's worth. So... As a pro wrestler in WWF it, in the early 80s, I guess my managerial preference would go Wizard 1, Blassie 2, Albano 3. Because I just don't think I would fit with the rest of Albano's guys. And like I just said earlier, with Blassie's dudes, I don't know if I could have dinner with them. So now th- that pretty much leaves Wizard. The contestant, 288 pounds from parts unknown, Rex Moondog. His opponent, weighing 255 pounds from Princeton, Minnesota, one of the greatest champions of all time, Bob Backlund. Ordinarily, you would have Gary Michael Capetta as the ring announcer on the All-Star tapings in Hamburg. But for some reason, in the middle of 1981, you actually see Joe McHugh in Hamburg. And the guy that you heard there who's a fellow by the name of Tony Sebio, who kind of sounds like a background character in a gangster film, or perhaps like the newspaper reporter that they have in the background. But anyway, passed away August 2015. It was one of those Johnny Cash, June Carter Cash deals where his wife passed away in July, and he passed 
three weeks later. I got to tell you, not to be morbid, that that's not happening with me. Uh, I would guess that there is about a two percent chance that I outlive my wife because all the women in her family live to the age of like ninety-two. And the fact that I smoked for a number of years probably isn't working in my favor. So now we have this non-title match with Bob Backlund taking on Moondog Rex. And I can assure you it's not going to be as batshit as the El Olimpico match before, just just because it's non-title. Captain Lou Albano accompanying Moondog Rex, or Rex Moondog as he's known. Uh, I guess Moondog would be the last name, it would seem. Like in Korea where you have the baseball player Hyun Soo Kim, as it's pronounced in America, he's actually known as Kim Hyun Soo in Korea. So maybe that's the way the Moondogs do it. But Captain Lou looking particularly slobbish on this date. Like he just got back from a day at the beach in Ocean, Ocean City, New Jersey. And, he, and he's been kind of drinking out on the boardwalk a little too long. Like he's got jean shorts on, but they don't they don't fit properly. And he, he's barefoot. For some reason, uh, maybe he's, I don't know what the, why he couldn't get like flip flops or something. I can't imagine that in Hamburg or in Allentown that the the ground or the floor in those places was particularly clean. As we get going, Howard Finkel with the voiceover of yet another local card. This one in Asbury Park on August seventh, and that has a Andre the Giant Killer Khan main event as well, like some of the other ones. Single leg takedown by Bob, where he just kind of trips him by grabbing the leg. He does that twice, and Bob arm drags the Moon Dog, who then begs off in the corner. So Backlund very much dominating this match early with his wrestling prowess as he gets a wrist lock on him. And then he snaps uh, Rex over like a hip toss and starts wrenching the arm. I have to admit, I get Rex and Spot mixed up quite a bit. And I I don't think that's as bad as when Jesse Ventura would get Jacques and Raymond Rougeau confused because they didn't even have the exact same color hair. But they just get confused in my head, and I think the mnemonic I have to use to remember this is, remember which one is Randy Colley, and just kind of work off of that. Bob with a shoulder block, but then he is caught with a body slam. And, and this reminds me, okay, and I tweeted about this the other day. I was watching the SummerSlam Spectacular 1993 on the award-winning WWE Network, or at least once I freaking found it on there and went through the labyrinth maze and all that crap. Like, there's a Bob Backlund-Shawn Michaels match that I found very interesting for the fact that Shawn Michaels weighed approximately 327 pounds for that match. And there's a spot where Backlund is slamming Sean and Sean is literally reaching down the front of Backlund's trunks. I mean, this is like the 1993 version of that bushwhacker who fondled Raymond Rougeau's balls. I don't know why Raymond Rougeau keeps coming up. Uh, <laughs> he must be on on my mind for some reason. I don't know. So Rex then misses an elbow, and we get an arm drag. He's kind of back to the arm work as Backlund's doing a thing where he, he knows he's got Albano on the outside and he's kind of keeping an eye on him while kind of trying to wear the man down. He did a little bit of this in a previous Greetings from Allentown match where superstar Billy Graham had sauntered out to ringside for his match against the Hangman. This is where Graham destroyed the world title belt. That would be episode seven. Do check it out in the archives. Uh, Rex goes for another slam. Bob actually slides out of it. It goes for the O'Connor roll, which gets to Lou Albano up on the apron. But Bob turns in time 
after he had gotten the ca- captain's attention on the apron and he turns around before rex can cheap shot him and poor moondog rex he's so disoriented that he's actually reaching for a tag like he's uh, got somebody in the corner waiting for him so vince asks where is moondog's spot anyway or actually he asks, where is spot and where is king and i love vince still shouting out keeping the light on for moondog king who hasn't been seen in like four months but hey now this is actually kind of the cue for Moondog's spot to make his way out now. All of a sudden, he's just sort of there. It maybe it seemed like a weird edit, like you, you can't actually see him walking down to ringside, but the Moondog then puts his head down, a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran. Backlund follows it up with a big body slam and is presumably grateful for the fact that the Moondog is not reaching down the front of his trunks and trying to touch his dick. And Backlund, Backlund then tries to run the ropes. He gets tripped by Albano. So finally, the two guys on the outside have combined to actually do something. So Rex works over Backlund for a little bit and he goes for a pile driver. And the way Backlund reverses it is rather interesting. It's almost as if he decided consciously to not use his arms at all because you see the spot in every Stone Cold Steve Austin match during the Attitude Era where go for the pile driver and then, you know, Austin, you know, backdrop out of it well he he's not just using his neck but backland here is apparently like it's like he's a little kid saying look ma no hands and then backland scores with a pile driver of his own as the moondog is shaking his legs wildly as he's up in position for the pile driver but that only gets a two count i was actually mildly surprised by that it well i mean I guess not, because I did know the finish to this match going in. A big back suplex by Bob, but Backlund is down too. So I guess he's not alerting all Japan to anything at this point. And the atomic drop try misses, but not by Bob. It was actually the Moondog trying to land the atomic drop on Backlund, who had used that as his finisher more in the late 70s. By the time 80-81 rolls around, he's not using it quite as much because the atomic drop kind of got phased out by move inflation. I, I see that where that got victimized. And Bob slides behind, scores with the O'Connor roll into a bridge, which was mostly used as his finisher in 81, 82. And that is how he picks up the victory over Moondocks Rex. But, oh no, we are far from done on this one because you got two guys outside of the ring. So they're going to rush in and see if they can extract their pound of flesh. Backman. Look at 
Now, before I address how all the kids storm the ring to mob the hero, Bob Backlund, after he's dispatched the Moondogs and Captain Lou, I have to give the Moondogs and Lou credit because they certainly showed ass for Backlund and made him look good, especially Albano, who sometimes would be accused of not bumping, you know, but here he's falling on his ass like every three seconds, like he's drunk. Now, he may have been anyway, but it's particularly comical the way he's falling down because he's trying to keep his pants up as well. I guess to not literally show ass. And Backlund dispatches all of them, but it's not in the cleanest fashion. You, you get some of those Haku and Hercules from the 91 Saturday Night's Main Event Battle Royal where they kind of have to run themselves out over or through the ropes. But it's perfectly fine. And now you get these kids storming the ring because it's 1981. Now, you would see this in sports, particularly in the 70s, of people running on the field, you know, during the course of action. The most famous one being when Hank Aaron broke the home run record of Babe Ruth in 74. There are these two guys who run on the field when Aaron rounds second base, and you see them running with him, which is a scary moment given that Aaron was getting death threats. But just watch any major sporting event like the Yankees winning the American League pennant in 1976. Chris Chambliss hits a home run. Basically, the field is so mobbed by the time he's rounding third base that home plate had actually gotten stolen. So technically, the Yankees never won the 1976 American League pennant. So it's a good thing that they got swept in the World Series by the Reds because it would have just been completely invalidated. You don't see it in football and in hockey so much, and presumably in soccer as well. Like In hockey, who the hell is going to run on like a sheet of ice? Although there was a guy who tried to attack a referee at the Boston Garden and basically got hit from behind by the linesman who was protecting his referee partner and hit him like headfirst into the boards. Actually, pretty hilarious since the guy got what was coming to him. But basketball... When the Celtics win the 1984 NBA title, they win it in the Boston Garden in Game 7 against the Lakers, the greatest NBA Finals series ever. And the Lakers throw up like a last-second shot. It was like nine. They were down by nine, so the, the game was over, and all these people are about to storm the court. And just Larry Bird trying to get the hell out of there where he's like pushing and shoving people, trying to get to the locker room. It's, it's as if the concept of security did not exist until about the year 1986. So these kids storming the ring is actually realistic from that perspective, except a lot of the times, like on a disco demolition night, most of the people were on drugs. Uh, There is, until a certain point of time, I guess December 31st, 1979, where I just assumed that everybody was on drugs all the time in the 70s. I mean, in talking to my in-laws and some of their hijinks back in like 78, you know, taking a modified airport shuttle and driving from that loading it with Jack Daniels and beer and driving it to the Indy 500. That's what I expect everyday life was in the 70s. In 1981, you're not too far removed from it, but these these are kids. And I've always kind of wondered, you know, the I guess WWF, wrestling itself wasn't always particularly kid-friendly. In fact, you couldn't even bring kids to Madison Square Garden for wrestling until a certain point of time. I want to say at some point in the 70s. It may have actually been the night Bob Backlund won the WWF title in February of 78. But you're creating this image. It's basically like they're shooting a movie, and we want to get this shot of... All these kids running in and supporting 
Bob Backlund, who might not be the most relatable person in the world. And this leads to, when you watch this, I'm always drawn to different things. The thing that I've been watching more recently is like the smaller kids definitely having trouble getting into the ring. Now, there's not a whole lot of fat kids in this because it's 1981. Kids just drank out of a hose all the time. I guess there was less sugar in the world. Uh, I I don't know what it was, but kids like maybe maybe they were outside more exercising because there wasn't the home uh, video game systems. I, mean, I guess that's something you could you could blame with Nintendo coming a little bit later. But you know they, they mobbed the ring and there's like a hundred of them and and you look at a different thing. There's like one teenager who like runs right at Backland at the beginning and, and Bob kind of looks horrified like. Oh my God! Is this guy gonna pull like a shiv on me, and I'm going to die on the Hamburg tapings? Like, do they want me out that badly? Well, no. He was just billed as the greatest champion of all time. And I gotta say this: the absolute funniest thing that could have happened is the one like 15 year old kid who storms the ring first, and Bob sees him and briefly has this horrified look on his face. If he had locked him in a cross face chicken wing, that would have been no lie, the funniest moment in the history of wrestling television, bar none. I don't know offhand what the funniest moment is. It's probably from a WCW Prime involving Dusty Rhodes, but. Bob Backlund hooking a 15-year-old in the middle of the ring because there was a miscommunication, that that would have been some pure comedy. But there's so many kids in there, and you get this shot of them supporting the world champion. It's used in the championship wrestling intro right up through 1984, like briefly into Hogan's title reign before it becomes Michael Jackson's thriller, the instrumental but I have to blow the lid off one thing, because I've watched a couple of different versions of this match, and the ending, something is a little bit different, and I noticed on the audio that I played of the end of the match and the the attack there, you can hear Vince and Pat go quiet for a little bit. There looked to be some sound, you know, clipping and editing, and, you know, this was definitely clipped down from what aired on All-Star Wrestling Two weeks before this so it's on the network july 18th 81 and you the one thing i'll say about the network interface now is you can go it's much easier to go directly to a match on roku you're always able to do that on the computer unless it was a chris benoit match but you you could do that you can do that now on the roku and that's made things easier and i've actually watched the all-star version of this match two or three times and the, the the ending where everybody is storming the ring is extremely different. There's a lot more of it. And you can see SD Jones in the middle of the ring in the shot, which is clearly edited out of this episode of Championship Wrestling, waving the kids into the ring when you can see maybe there's a little bit of hesitation because you get a, you know, a dozen or so kids storming the ring. No, no. We want to get the image of 100 kids in the ring and not just like 10, 10 or 12. And I guess this is a better image than a similar Bob Backlund thing years from now where he's holding up the cardboard title that he created as the people's champion in that local promotion around around 1985. I need to watch that video again because I watched it a couple of years ago. Backlund holding up the cardboard title in 85, 86, whatever the hell year it was. It's, it's just so sad to see what happened to him. After the WWF basically said, you know, we're, we're, we're done with you for now. A mob scene in the square circle. An absolute happy mob in there. Oh, my goodness. I 
Well, I don't really take Pat Patterson as a guy who knows chapter and verse the 1976 ALCS or anything like that. And I have just remembered that what they did, because home plate got stolen by the mob that ran on the field at Yankee Stadium and Chris Chambliss couldn't get there, is they had him come out after the mob had dispersed and the umpires actually watched him touch home plate. But hey, he left the baseline. He should have been out. And the series should have continued at that point, although the Yankees were going to win. So a great moment. Bob Backlund, mobbed by the fans. You've created a nice image for your show that you can use for the next almost three years. And, hey, I got no problem with that. I say maybe use this moment on a better opponent than a Moondog Rex. I don't really see anything wrong with it per se. It's one half of the tag team champions as it was at the time. It's not really harming the guy, although the Moondogs would be immediately shunted down the card and just kind of, I wouldn't say fired by Lou Albano immediately after losing it, but Captain Lou turned his attention to another team that we're going to be seeing coming up later in this program. The world's number one harness race, the Hamiltonian, at the world's number one harness track, the Meadowlands. The Hamiltonian at the Meadowlands, August 8th. Gates open 9 a.m. I actually learned something from that little ad about the Hamiltonian, which is part of the triple crown of harness racing, that I did not know that it was only at the Meadowlands and starting in 1981. It was actually held in Illinois prior to that. So I guess there were more changes in harness racing, which... I never really liked betting on because I had a friend I liked, you know, to watch horse racing with him go and gamble when I was in college. And he always told me, he's like, don't even bother with harness racing. All the favorites win. It's all kind of boring. The only thing I like about it is just how kind of ridiculous it is where, like, these dudes are, like, in the back of this carriage and they're all awkward. I don't know. Now. Also, on the awkward side, not this new tag team we have coming in under Captain Lou Albano in the form of Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito. I'll get to them in a minute. On the other side, we have a very young Kurt Henning. But what's really strange is Joe McHugh, you know, he liked to pronounce things a certain way. And Kurt Henning's tag team partner this bout is Terry Gunn, who is from Ireland, or at least he is billed as such. But I don't know if I recognize the name of this place in Ireland. Introducing in the corner to my right from Dublin, Ireland, weighing 240 pounds, here is Irish Terry Gunn. God knows my diction isn't perfect. I mean, earlier in this show, I referred to Killer Karn, and I had to, you know, get out of it by making a joke about home improvement. But Dublin, Ireland, that, that's adding an awful lot of letters to Dublin, Ireland. But anyway, let's not lose track of the other three guys in this match who are much more important. Starting with Mr. Fuji, this is actually his return to the WWF after a roughly a three-year absence. It's just weird to think of him being somewhere else when you think of Mr. Fuji, you don't think of him in being in any other any other territories but the WWF. He was there much of the seventies, you know, with Professor Toro Tanaka, mainly in tag teams. You don't think of you know, Fuji working Georgia or working Memphis or anything like that. But his partner here, Masa Saito, this is his actual debut in the World Wrestling Federation. And I've spoken chapter and verse about how much I love Masa Saito. If I were to make a list of like the top five guys that I've gained the most appreciation for 
while doing this podcast over the last two and a half years. He is he's definitely on that list, probably in the top three. As I mentioned, Albano dropped the moon dogs like right quick. I mean, this is almost like Albano is like sunny out there. Which by the way, you know, there there is more than you know, there there are certain comparisons between Sonny and Captain Lou. Both managed tag teams, uh both wore uh shorts that uh, were were cut off, so though one probably looked good. You know, better than the other, I guess. But, but man, what a taskmaster Albano is. I mean, he's like Bill Belichick who waved the punter for the, Ryan Allen the other day for the Patriots. A, a very good punter. Had maybe the best game of his career in Super Bowl 53. Nope, we we got we drafted a new punter. He got great hang time on his punt. Sorry, you're out of here. So that's the way Albano is with his tag teams. Just on to the next thing. And we start with... Terry Gunn and Fuji in there and Mr. Fuji is 48 years old at this time but actually looks quite good and quite spry now it may be a function of me watching this on 1.25 times speed which was really screwing with my head but Saito when he gets in there he he's so awesome because he's one of those dudes I would not want to see him in an alley. If I had to pick two wrestlers in history to accompany me down a dark alley, I think I would choose him and Haku, because I don't think Andre was really you know up for the violence. I think Saito and Haku would actually take uh, great pleasure in taking somebody apart. Fuji, one of the moves he would do that kind of shows how, at least he's in decent shape, is a twisting back senton where the guy would be lined up near his corner and he would run the ropes and he would twist and he would kind of do like a back splash. And this would show up in the signature at the start of championship wrestling for a couple of years. Fuji, he's not letting all Japan know that he's ready to come over there because he's not dumping guys on their heads. That's Saito's job. But he's saying, look, New Japan, if you ever decide to have a G1 tournament, I'm ready to come over and just start running around this ring like crazy. But we get a tag from Terry Gunn to Kurt Henning. And now Henning's in there with Saito. You get a pair of future AWA World Heavyweight Champions. Like granted, it was after the promotion had you know kind of gone sour, but it does not reduce the respect that I have for either one of these guys. Henning hits a backdrop and then goes over towards Fuji to kind of give him a shot while he's on the apron and he gets caught with a back suplex by Saito who's letting all Japan know what they're missing out on because Saito is actually a New Japan guy. He gets a two count and then starts working over Henning on the mat. Saito does, but Kurt actually does fight out of it and makes the tag to Terry Gunn because we all know who's taking the fall on that team and it is not young Kurt Henning. Because he's still being granted a certain level of respect. He's definitely in that Lanny Poffo status of 81 WWF where he's teaming with Jobber X. So he's not going to be taking the fall. He had a takedown and a knee drop on gun. And and once again, I got screwed up in my notes here as I said, wow, this is going really, really fast and at quite a pace. And then I remembered, oh, right, 1.25 times speed. And Saito... As Fuji distracts the referee, presumably getting ready for his future managerial career, Saito puts something in his foot. He has like a black tape thing on his foot. Presumably it's not tape because he slides something in there, hits him with a kick. He hits Terry Gunn and scores with the 1-2-3. I don't know if you really needed to do something like that to... uh... (laughs) 
<laughs> you don't need to establish them as heels. I'm not sure you really needed to cheat to defeat Terry Gunn. But hey, you know, I guess you're sending the message that they're doing everything they possibly can to win. And with Albano and the guiding light of tag teams with 16 different tag team wins, I don't know what number the Moondogs was or what number Fuji and Saito was, but they would eventually win those tag team titles that Martel and Gurria had won on the previous week's show on the October 17th edition of Championship Wrestling. So just a couple of months to build, and then they become the champions themselves. Hello, Donna! We'll see that's definitely a trope you don't see in advertising anymore the woman who is with her car that's broken down on the side of the road and the man who pulls up and offers her a ride somewhere and what he does is he offers her a coke and this is kind of the language between these two have a coke and a smile there were ads in this video but they would get like four second taste and then it would cut off and go right back to the wrestling i can say with great certainty it wouldn't be the last time in the 80s that a guy would give a woman coke and expect something in return (laughs) anyway up next we have mark pole no relation to former red sox great dick pole one of the great names in red sox in all of baseball history for that matter facing the visiting dignitary as i put it from mexico mil mascaras the man of a thousand masks and this was actually taped on june 30th in allentown and i don't understand what the hell the deal was with these mil mascaras matches where it would only be his stuff that would be taped and then it would be delayed a little bit more than everybody else so he had a match taped i think in may that was aired during like the next set of taping shows if, if you understand what i'm saying because I, I don't quite i don't quite get it why it wasn't aired with the rest of everything else but these days good old mill seems to be known for the no yob thing from the bruce pritchard podcast i'm not a huge fan in terms of the matches that i've seen but he was a guy that was built up in pro wrestling illustrated inside wrestling as this sort of face of mexican wrestling and i could never figure out why that was i don't know if he had some sort of personal relationship with bill after like they were pals but i think i'm no expert on mexican wrestling by any means but there's a there's a big three el santo blue demon and mill and the other two guys santo and demon were several years older than him like 15 20 years so i think it's a function of mill mascaris being born in 1942 so he's still of age and can still compete in the ring during a time where in the late 70s and into the 80s you have more of these magazines and wrestling might be a little bit more popular so i i think that at least that's my operating theory on why he seems to get more ink amongst casual fans now i could be completely off base on that but he was the first masked wrestler to wrestle in madison square garden because they actually banned guys in mass which I always thought it was kind of weird, but then again, when you get into athletic commission and governmental stuff, you're just asking for weird crap to happen. And Mill gets pull in a knuckle lock and a hip toss, just some pretty basic stuff to start out. So Pat 
gives us a little bit of insight here, maybe, into Vince McMahon's thinking. Because these two guys are pals. But in terms of the masked wrestlers and perhaps a reason why Vince McMahon might not like the masked wrestlers as much. You know, Vince, one thing about a mask, you can never really tell what the guy is thinking about. Because when you're not wearing a mask, the guy is making a facial expression. You can almost tell what he's going to do. But when he's got a mask over his face and all you see is a really wrong eyes, you never know what the guy is going to do. That's actually a fairly common complaint about guys in masks. Oh, you can't see, you know, the facial expression or whatever. Well, there are other ways to emote those kind of things to the crowd. I don't think Jushin Thunder Liger ever suffered for the cool-looking mask that he had. And I, the, on the contrary... With guys in mass, you can actually sell those things. I mean, Rey Mysterio Jr. sold a lot of them back, you know, in the day and, you know, still wrestling to this point. And I think, like, Eric Bischoff completely missed the boat on it by trying to take the mass off all the luchadors in the late 90s. And like, oh, yeah, we could actually make money selling these masks. The only problem with wrestling masks, can't really wear them out in public. It's not like you can go deposit something at the bank and walk in there wearing your luchador mask. It's kind of frowned upon in today's society and even even back then. German suplex by Mill, who I think kind of has a little bit more power to his game than a modern-day lucha guy where there, there's a little bit more high-flying. Of course, this very much a different era. A toll hold leads to a rope break, and then a side headlock takeover by Mr. Pole, but Masker slips out of it, gets a head scissors, and he finishes Mark Pole off with a suplex and slam hybrid. I have no idea exactly what to call it. It was like he was going for a vertical suplex, but then kind of grabbed him between the legs like a body slam and just kind of took him over that way and that is how he picks up the three count he comes into wwf just sort of every so often and makes the tv tapings which i think makes him stand apart from a guy like antonio Inoki, who would come over but he would never do the television tapings in pennsylvania he would just want to work madison square garden and i think that's kind of why antonio Inoki never quite got over to the extent that he might have been able to in the New York Territory and in the United States in general if he had come and done more of those TV tapings. But hey, we're talking about Mil Mascaris here. And yeah, I'm not a huge fan here, but hey, you know, I'm much more distracted by Joe McHugh who is pulling off wearing white pants at the age of 78. So good for him is all I can say. And that is pretty much a wrap for WWF Championship Wrestling for August 1st, 1981, a historic day in our nation's history and pop culture history. Elsewhere in the land of podcasts, Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters, well, he's working on a really big guest, both literally and figuratively, that anybody listening to this show would definitely know. I'm not at liberty to say who it is, but clearly you can tell from what, I, what I'm saying that it's probably Pope Francis, Pope Francis I. Why the hell can't I say anything on this freaking show anymore? But anyway, do be on the lookout for that because you're going to know it when you, when you see it. And nothing would surprise me with the guests that Steve pulls off, I can assure you. And on the Our Vantage Point podcast with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn, they take a look at IWA from 1975, one of the first attempts at going national almost a decade before Vince McMahon 
man tried to end the world by doing that and taking advantage of cable television, that whole deal. And on the wrestling podcast about nothing with Ring of Honor's Brawler Malonis and Mike Crockett, they welcome in Sonny Goodspeed and Brian Fury to talk about local turf wars in independent promotions. I always love that kind of stuff, like hearing hearing those stories, like the pettiness that, that goes on in that, that type of thing. Like I remember in an earlier episode talking about something like that, how like one, one wrestling school graffitied the door of, I think, the chaotic training center. It just seems like, wh- why would you bother to, to do that? I mean, it, I guess business is business, and that's that's how it goes. Maybe I'm just naive to the ways of the world. Maybe I'm just too damn sheltered, especially since I'm at home all the time. I'm not sheltered enough, though, from the friggin' turkeys that have invaded my yard and I now like to you know come home to roost near my garden. And quite frankly, I'm going to have to put something out there. I don't know if it's like mint or whatever to kind of shoo them away because it's this one turkey and it's four kids. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm tired of it, okay? I can't set up leg traps. I, I can't do any of that stuff. It's not, if I shoot it with a BB gun, oh, I'm a monster. But, you know, these turkeys could just come into my yard and, you know, shit all over my lawn that I try to take care of. I don't know, I don't know where that rant came from. Probably because for next week's show... I don't have, just like for this week, I don't have anything in particular, although I have found some things on the YouTube that was, uh, well, one of them was labeled weirdly as a full episode of 1991 Primetime Wrestling, which it is a two-hour show, so it would take a while, but it also happens to be the Macho Man Randy Savage's bachelor party. So there's a lot going on in like a storyline running through that show i probably don't have to spend too much time on the actual matches from that but that's something i'm definitely gonna do down the road i've been my watching has been so scattered all over the place that i'm sure i will find something and i kind of want to do something off youtube because no youtube comment did her this week because a lot of these matches aren't even on youtube i can't find the backland Moondog Rex match or the Mill Mascaris matches. I guess it really doesn't matter. Although some of it, like I said, also appeared on All Star Wrestling, the Backlund match. So I do advise you to check it out on the WWE Network if you have a subscription. And also Daily Motion, I guess, may may have something to that effect. So I thank you so much for listening and please be a dear and give five stars to Greetings from Allentown on iTunes, Apple Music for your review because it provides, like I always say, social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this particular program. And do the same for the Pro Wrestling Only feed as well where you can find Greg's Ballot Town and other great shows as well. I would be remiss. I The show actually, the Military Industrial Suplex dropped with an interview with Billy Jack Haynes, which is, I guess, part two of that conversation that Tom had with him. I'm not sure. I haven't connected with Tom on that, whether it was a continuation of the conversation they had from the earlier podcast with Billy Jack Haynes. Certainly an interesting character in that realm. So that is definitely a must listen. I probably mentioned it earlier in the show, but the way my brain is working, all I can think about is assassinating turkeys. So I should just get my ass on out of here. Thank you again for listening. And do tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. 
and my name is Joe the King.